This morning we're looking at the bulk of Jesus' vine and branches metaphor. After spending two full weeks examining verse 2 alone, we looked at basically the first half of verse 2 two Sunday mornings ago, and the second half of verse 2 last Sunday morning. We did that to lay a theological foundation for understanding the rest of this metaphor. And this morning, we pick up with verse 3, and we're going to look all the way through to verse 11. And we're examining here the bulk of Jesus' vine and branches metaphor. In verse 3, Jesus essentially states what we've been looking at theologically over the last couple of weeks, though not in the same words. He tells his disciples, already you are clean. Before he even starts talking about abiding, before he even gives them the command to abide, he says, already you are clean. So in other words, they don't have to abide in order to become clean. And they don't have to bear fruit in order to become clean. Fruit bearing is here in this passage as a future thing. But Jesus says here, already you are clean. The disciples are already clean. Though they have not yet abided in Christ, as they are being enjoined to do here, though they have not yet borne fruit, they are already clean because of the word Jesus has spoken to them, he says, which is shorthand for his whole teaching. The word that he has spoken to them is all that he's taught them so far, which includes things like believe in the Son, that you may not perish, but have everlasting life. Or eat the bread of life. Where, 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 where may we get this bread? I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever is thirsty, if anyone thirsts, Jesus stood up and cried out, come to me and drink. This is the word Jesus has spoken to his disciples. They've heard it, they've believed it, and so Jesus says, they are already clean. Jesus' metaphor about the vine and the branches and abiding in the vine and all this stuff isn't therefore about how to get clean. And neither is it about how to remain clean as we have seen over the last couple of weeks. Whoever is vitally and organically connected to Jesus is clean already, to use the language of this verse. And he can never be, that person can never be taken away, to use the language of verse 2. The one taken away in verse 2 is the one who is not vitally and organically connected to Jesus. The one who is not therefore a fruit bearer, that's the one who's taken away. The one who is vitally and organically connected to Jesus is one who is already clean because of the word Jesus has spoken to him. For that one, Jesus ever lives to make intercession. And he is able, therefore, to save that one to the uttermost. That one will never be taken away. That one is already clean and cannot become unclean and removed from the vine. This is what we spent the last two Sunday mornings belaboring. With this in mind, therefore, to use theological terms, abiding in Christ, as Jesus puts it 
to us in this passage doesn't have to do primarily with justification, but rather with sanctification. This metaphor in John chapter 15 pertains primarily not to union with Christ, but to communion with Christ. And we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. But let me say this. Of course, of course, if someone doesn't abide in Christ ultimately or at all, it is indicative that they never were vitally or organically connected to Jesus. After all, this person who doesn't abide in Christ is going to be the person that is fruitless, the fruitless branch. Because Jesus says in verse 4, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides. So the person who doesn't abide is also going to be the fruitless branch, which we know from our study over the last couple weeks was never vitally and organically connected in the first place. There was an external connection to be sure. But if there is no vital and organic connection, there will be no abiding, there will be no fruit, and that person will be taken away. But this is like the people described in 1 John 2.19, where it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. Interestingly, the Greek word which is translated in 1 John 2.19 as continued with, they would have continued with us, that's the same Greek word for abide. So another, another way of saying it is that these people in 1 John 2.19 did not abide with the disciples, but rather went out from them. Now, in such cases, obviously, people who are externally connected to Jesus, externally connected to the disciples, but do not abide with Jesus, do not abide with the disciples. These people are people that do not bear fruit. They are people that are not vitally and organically connected. Therefore, they don't abide. Therefore, they don't continue with Jesus. Therefore, they don't bear fruit. Therefore, they are taken away. Therefore, they are thrown into the fire and burned, according to verse 6. And that happens. So I'm not saying that this passage has nothing to do with justification. And nothing to do with union with Christ. The person who is not yet vitally and organically connected to Christ, but just playing church, needs to understand that if you are to be justified, you must become vitally and organically connected to Christ. You must become clean by the word that Jesus has spoken. Understand that. But after warning about the danger of being merely connected to him, Jesus is here now in verse 3 and moving forward, urging those who are already clean, urging those who are already vitally and organically connected to him, who can therefore never be taken away, Jesus is urging these people to abide with Him. So the primary application of verses 3 to 11 is not about final salvation in Christ. Rather, the primary application of verses 3 to 11 
is about life in Christ. Having already become clean, how then should we live? Having already become vitally and organically connected to Jesus, how then should we live? That's what this passage is primarily about. After providing a warning that it is possible to be connected to Him, merely externally, and be damned in the end, Jesus now turns His attention to another group of people, those who are vitally and organically connected to Him, and He tells them, Abide with Me. Not so that they may become clean, not so that they may remain clean, but for the following reasons. Here are six reasons from this passage that Jesus tells those who are already clean to abide in Him. First, to have our prayers answered. Look at verse 7. If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This reminds me of that statement from the Old Testament. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So if you, if you really, really badly want a car, or if you're a single person and you really, really want, badly want to marry someone that you've got a crush on, then you delight yourself in the Lord so that you get the desires of your heart, right? That's what that verse means, right? Now, to the contrary, delight yourself, when your heart is delighted in the Lord, you will not find the desires of your heart unsatisfied and unfulfilled. The person whose heart is delighting in the Lord is the person who finds that they receive from the Lord's hand that which is delightful to them. The Lord sanctifies them and they're glad that He sanctifies them. The Lord preserves them and they're glad that He preserves them. The Lord presses upon them their Christian duties and they're glad that He does, that He puts His yoke upon them, which is easy. And He puts His burden upon them, which is light. And they live in fellowship with Christ Jesus and they find that it is true that the Father and the Son and the Spirit come to them and make their home with Him and that God sheds His love abroad in their hearts. They find those who delight themselves in the Lord that the deepest desires of their heart are fulfilled in the Lord. Likewise, this passage, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Well, if you're abiding in the Lord, guess what? Your wishes are going to change. And the kind of things that you wish for and the kind of things that you pray for change. So this is not like, oh man, I've got I to gotta get this, this guy or I've got to get this girl to marry. Oh, I've got to get this new job or I've got to get this whatever. So let me abide in Christ so that I can pray for these things and then the formula will kind of work out so that I'll get what I pray for. That's not how it works. When you change, what you wish for changes. And therefore, what you pray for changes. But the person who abides in the Lord is the person who prays according to God's heart and according to God's priorities and finds an ear in heaven which is pleased 
to hear one of his sons or one of his daughters pouring out these kind of requests and is pleased to give them the good things for which they ask. So the first reason that Jesus gives us here, that those who are already clean should abide in him, is so that we might have our prayers heard and answered on high. Our prayer life improves when we abide in Christ. Secondly, to glorify God, look at verse 8. By this is my Father glorified. When we abide in Christ and we bear fruit, it glorifies God. What is the chief end and duty of man? To have fun? To make lots of money? To be happy? To be fulfilled? Now, what does the Catechism teach us? To glorify God. To enjoy Him forever. This is central to the Christian life, is living for the glory of God. If you think to yourself, glorifying someone else is not really that big of a motivation to me, even if it's God. You're either, you're either not a Christian or you're an infantile Christian. Because part of the mature Christian life is learning that this life is not about you. It's not about me. I don't even exist for me. I exist for God. I don't live in a John-centered universe. I don't, even my house, endurance, is not a John-centered house, or ought not to be. Sometimes I'm selfish and I make it like it is, but it ought not to be. Even my house is not for me. Even my car is not for me. Even my family is not for me. God is to be central in everything. And part of becoming a mature Christian is to realize this and to understand this and to learn to seek God's glory. To learn to live for God instead of living for ourselves. And Jesus tells us, if you want to glorify God, abide in me. This is the second motivation that Jesus gives for those who are already clean to abide in Him. Thirdly, to give evidence that we are disciples of Christ. This is where fruit comes in. Remember the whole passage is about the vine, or pardon me, the branch abiding in the vine so that it would bear fruit. Right? And what does the fruit do? What, what role does the fruit play in the branch's life? Does Again, I'm going to stress this point because it's, it's imperative that we get this. Does the fruit merit that the person becomes clean? Does the fruit merit that now the branch can become attached to the vine? If the branch bears enough fruit, then the vine will receive it. Now, this is against the way that this whole thing reads. Look at verse 8. What does the fruit do? Bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When we abide in Christ, we end up bearing fruit, which gives evidence that we are already connected to the vine, that we are already clean. When you're living a fruitful Christian life, it's encouraging to you to see God at work in you, bearing fruit. 
And it's, it's not the sole basis of our assurance, but it factors into our assurance of faith. It's a comfort to us to see fruit in our lives that comes from abiding in Christ. And we can see, man, I really perceive that God is doing something in me. So, first, to have our prayers answered. Second, to glorify God. Third, to give evidence that we are disciples of Christ. These are the first three of six reasons that Jesus gives those who are already clean, according to verse 3, that they should abide in Him. The fourth reason is to enjoy communion with Christ. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Well, we have a couple ways of taking this. Again, if you don't bear fruit, if you don't abide in Jesus, He's going to stop loving you. <laughs> well, again, this is why we've belabored this point over the last two Sundays. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Not I will be with you so long as you bear fruit. In Hebrews, we're told that we should appropriate that promise that comes to us so many times in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Joshua. I will never leave you, nor forsake you, unless you don't abide. (laughs) Now, that, that last bit is not part of it, unless you don't abide. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Either Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us, or there are conditions and circumstances in which He will leave us or forsake us. It cannot be both. And what does Romans chapter 8 tell us? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when he says, abide in my love, he's not saying, hey, make sure you keep me loving you by what you do. That's not the way that we're to take this. So... The alternative is to understand this as abiding in a sense, with a sense of His love, with an experience of His love, or an aspect of His love. Put it this way, I I love my boys, I love my sons, and I will never stop loving them. But if if we could focus in on a bad day, where, let's say, my children are misbehaving. I'm not always equally pleased with that. Or focus in on a day when, let's say, let's say that I am angry with them or upset about them for some legitimate reason. They might not feel and perceive my love the same way or my, my pleasure in them the same way. My love of complacency, as the theologians would say. What Jesus is teaching us here is that though He's never going to stop loving us, there is a sense in which our abiding in Him results in us feeling His love, experiencing His love, perceiving His love, 
and or in him extending an aspect of his love, which is his pleasure for us, or pardon me, his pleasure in us, such that we could perceive that. Look, God always loves you, Christian, but he's not always equally pleased with you. And you don't always perceive his love, do you? What Jesus is telling us is that there is a sense in which you need to abide in him so that you perceive his love. So that he, he, he might take the delight in you, which he delights to take in those who are abiding in him. Fifthly, the same pertains to our communion with the Father. So the, the fourth reason is to enjoy communion with Christ, verse 9. The fifth reason is to enjoy communion with the Father, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. There is not only communion with Christ, but there is Trinitarian communion. It's not like Christ is the only one of the three persons of the Godhead that likes us, that loves us, that we might experience communion with and fellowship with. In, in Christ Jesus, we come to experience being loved by the Father as Christ is loved by the Father. And we come to experience a new relationship with the Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus. This is affected by our abiding in Christ. The distinction that I'm making here on these points is between union and communion, which I alluded to at the beginning of the message. Our union with Christ cannot be severed. When you trust in Christ Jesus, when the branch becomes connected to the vine, the branch can't be bad, so bad, that the vine dresser comes along and says, this, this branch is terrible, let me take it away. This is why I belabored this point over the last couple of Sundays. It is those who are merely externally connected to Jesus who are referenced in verse 2 as the branches being taken away. The fruitless branches who have a merely external connection to Jesus. If those branches which are vitally and organically connected to Jesus could be taken away, there are so many promises of God which would be rendered untrue. Like I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you, could, if you could have Christ interceding for you one day and then sin so badly the next day that Christ says, forget it. I'm not interceding for this person. If you could have your sins atoned for by the blood of Christ, but then sin so badly that the next day the Lord says, no, never mind, I'm going to take back the atonement. Then the graciousness the nature of salvation being a gift would be so profoundly and utterly changed that it would render the gospel fundamentally different than by grace. And so, 
our union with Christ Jesus can never be severed. If you are vitally and organically connected to Christ Jesus, if you can say today, I have a great high priest, then you can say tomorrow, I have a great high priest. If you can say today, my sins are atoned for by the blood of Christ, then you can say tomorrow, my sins are atoned for by the blood of Christ. If you can say today, the Father loves me, then you can say tomorrow, the Father loves me. Our union with Christ may never be severed, but our communion with Christ can ebb and flow, can fluctuate, can change. Our experience of that relationship, again, to use the metaphor of a father with his children, he never stops loving them, but the quality of that relationship ebbs and flows. The children's perception of the Father's pleasure and love ebbs and flows. The distinction that I'm making on, on these points is between union and communion. Though the union can never change, the communion can. And abiding in Christ is key to enjoying communion with all three persons of the Godhead. And the sixth reason from this passage that Jesus tells those who are already clean to abide in Him, is that they might experience supernatural joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that, by implication, therefore, your joy may be full. The way to get full joy is to have Jesus' joy in us. And Jesus' joy means the joy that Jesus gives us, that comes from us. God gives us supernatural joy when we are abiding in Christ. So, here are the six reasons, by way of review, to have our prayers answered, according to verse 7, to glorify God, according to verse 8, to give evidence that we are disciples of Christ, verse 8, to enjoy communion with Christ, and by extension and implication, His Father, verses 9 and 10, and His Spirit, and verse 11, to experience supernatural joy. So, just because this passage isn't about how to get saved, or how to not lose your salvation. Just because Jesus is talking to those who are already clean, it doesn't therefore follow that, well, who cares? I'm content with just barely getting into heaven. There are compelling reasons that Jesus tells those who are already clean that you ought to abide in Him. When we are abiding in Christ, as a general rule, we will experience these things. Now, let's say that there is a tragedy and somebody that you love dies in a traumatic fashion and and you're there on the scene of the accident crying and weeping and someone shows up a brother in Christ and says hey hey brother you got to abide in Christ i see you crying there and i mean according to John 15:11 your joy is supposed to be full well obviously there are other factors that affect our joy, our sense of communion with God. There are, obviously, it's not a formula to follow here. But it is the ordinary experience that when we f- abide in Christ Jesus, we experience this kind of life that Jesus describes in John chapter 15, verses 3 to 11. But here's the thing. It's often not all or nothing, is it? We're rarely experiencing these things 
or 0%. So it's, it's rarely the case that we never see any prayer answered or that we see every prayer answered. It's rarely the case that we don't glorify God at all whatsoever entirely or we glorify God thoroughly, profoundly, without any spot or blemish and there's just no, nothing that can be critiqued about the way we glorify God. It's, it's rare that we give zero evidence of belonging to Christ, of being His disciples. Or we give zero evidence of remaining corruption and we're like a hundred percent holy. It's rare that we enjoy zero communion with, with God and Christ or that we just enjoy such bliss that we feel like, man, heaven won't even be an upgrade because we're in such rich communion with Christ. It's rare that we experience no joy in Christ whatsoever or, again, that we are just on cloud nine and just experiencing 100% joy. Very often, our lived experience is somewhere between 0% and 100% of these aforementioned things. There is variance in our experience of these things. And the variance in our experience of these things is connected to our, our variance in abiding in Christ. Now what is abiding in Christ? We've been talking about it, but we haven't really defined it, have we? The Greek word literally means remain, dwell, or continue with, or continue in. So the usage in 1 John 2.19, which I referenced earlier, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, or they would have abided with us. We see this word also in John 3.36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or we could say, but the wrath of God abides on him. We see it also in John 14.10, where Jesus says, The Father who dwells in me. Jesus could have said, The Father, or we could translate what Jesus said equally correctly as, The Father who abides in me. You're getting a sense of the usage of what this word means. The sense of it, as used in John 15, Abide in me seems to be what John Gill describes it as in his commentary. We abide in Christ by, quote, fresh, repeated acts of faith. In other words, abiding in Christ happens by means of fresh, repeated acts of faith in Christ. Abiding in Christ looks like not just trusting in Christ Jesus once many years ago at a youth group event or a church conference or in a, in a moment or a season of strong passion and emotion or something like that. Like, yeah, yes, uh, something that I did a long time ago. Abiding in Christ looks like fresh, repeated acts of faith. Now, how do we... Or pardon me. Now, do we do this? 
Now do we do this? It's not a black and white answer, is it? If I say, do you abide in Christ? And we, we define abiding in Christ as fresh, repeated acts of faith. It's not really a black and white answer if I ask you, do you abide in Christ? Often the answer is sort of, or not as well as I'd like, but I'm trying. Because it's kind of more of a gray answer than a black and white answer. This is why we don't always pray as we ought. Our hearts are not always wishing for the things that we ought to be praying for. And so we see God saying no to us more often than we otherwise would. This is why we find our lives not always glorifying to God. This is why we see mixed evidence of our discipleship to Christ. Some evidence that yes, we are following Him. Yes, we are His disciples. But some evidence that in spite of it, we still have a lot of remaining corruption. That's why our communion with, with Christ and in Him, the whole Godhead, is not steady and interrupted. That's why we're not always walking in supernatural joy. It's a false dichotomy to say either you're abiding in Christ or you're not. If I put it to you like that today, I would not be as nuanced as I should be. If I said, it's simple, either you're abiding in Christ or you're not, that would not capture the nuance of our lived experience. There is a third option, which is that you're inconsistently, but to some degree, abiding in Christ. Christian, it is to you that Jesus is speaking in this passage when he says, already you are clean. Now, abide in me. Jesus is looking for from you, to use John Gill's words, fresh, repeated acts of faith. Regular, ongoing, looking to Him in faith. Not just trusting on what you did sometime, a long time ago, but fresh, repeated acts of faith. And he holds forth all of these things that we've enumerated today as this is what is going to happen more and more, increasingly so, as you learn to abide in me. Remember from last week that we have the promise that God is going to make us fruitful. But as we saw last week, That will involve pruning, which means that there will be challenges and decision points whether to continue abiding in Christ and to abide in Christ more deeply or to attempt to short circuit what God is doing by running, escaping, 
are turning back. The choices that we regularly make are not choices pertaining to whether we will merit and earn our full and final salvation, but they are choices that have consequences with respect to how much progress we make in sanctification, that have consequences with respect to all of the things that I enumerated today, our joyfulness in the Christian life, our fruitfulness in the Christian life, our sense of communion with God, the power of our prayer life, if I could put it this way. All of these sorts of things are affected at these decision points where God is pruning us to make us more fruitful, whether we lean into Him and abide in Him and exercise fresh, repeated acts of faith there and then in those moments, or whether we attempt to short-circuit the process by running away or turning back. John Gill says, It is easy to observe that when believers depart from Christ, though it be but partially and for a time, though they cannot finally and totally depart from Him, it is easy to observe that when believers depart from Christ, in what a poor, withered, fruitless condition they are, both in their frames and in their duties. We don't all make our way to heaven as efficiently, equally efficiently, equally joyfully, equally fruitfully, etc., etc. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we we know that we're talking about Christians building on the foundation of Christ. But then he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, which are all imperishables, wood, hay, straw, which are all perishables, each one's word will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Now listen to this. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And the old translation puts it as one barely escaping the flames. In other words, it is possible to be building on the foundation of Jesus Christ and just build poorly. And it's possible to be building on the foundation of Christ and to build better. Likewise, it's possible to be vitally and organically connected to the vine and saved and be more fruitful or less fruitful. It's possible to be vitally and organically connected to the vine and be already clean. You're saved, you can't be severed, but your joy may be more or less full. You may experience more or less communion with God and Christ. You may 
experience more or less answers to prayer. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells that parable of the sower. You know it. The farmer goes out to sow his seed. Some falls in this place, some falls in that place. What I want to bring you to is Matthew chapter 13 and verse 23, where Jesus says this about the seed that finds good soil. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. It's all Christians. All believers. If we, go, if we want to mix metaphors, these are branches connected to the vine. But listen to what Jesus says here. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold. In another, sixty. And in another, thirty. You see? This abiding in Christ is only it's only a salvation issue in the sense of if you're not vitally organically connected to the vine if you're a branch duct tape to the tree if you're posing as a Christian but you're not really connected to Jesus you're not abiding in him at all yeah you're going to be taken away and burned in the fire but that's not talking about Christians Jesus is talking to Christians those vitally and organically connected to him those who are already clean because of the word he's spoken to them and he says to them, abide in me. Why would we abide in Jesus if we're already saved? Jesus gives us all these reasons. He speaks to us about our life in him. He speaks to us about our sanctification. He speaks to us about our progress in the Christian life. He speaks to us about our enjoyment of the Christian life. Our joy our experience of communion with God. John Gill, as I, as I read a moment ago, speaks about the fella in a poor, withered, and fruitless condition. In his, both in his frame, that means his frame of mind, his mood, and his duties. He's in, a, he's in a bad frame of mind, and he's just not even very diligent with his duties. That's a, a Christian that's not abiding in Christ. That's shirking back from the pruning. Instead of exercising fresh, repeated acts of faith, he's running, he's escaping, he's avoiding. The one who's abiding in Christ, as God works to make us fruitful, orchestrates our circumstances, bring things to our awareness, to our consciousness, the one who is abiding in Christ exercises these fresh, repeated acts of faith all the way through. When things get tough, he leans in to Jesus instead of away from Jesus. Constantly leaning on the vine. Constantly drawing from the vine. The prayer life deepens. The engagement with Scripture deepens. The church commitment intensifies. Fresh, repeated, Acts of faith. Abiding in Christ. I think a good illustration of 
this leaning in is in the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress where Christian meets a couple of fellows who have left the city of destruction to run after him and try to get him to come back. Obstinate and pliable. And Christian says, well, why don't you, why don't, instead of me going back with you, why don't you go on with me to the celestial city? And Obstinate's like, no way, I'm going back. But Pliable's like, oh, this city sounds great. And he follows along with Christian, but then they both fall into a little swamp called the Slough of Despond. Things get tough. Pliable is like the seed that falls on shallow ground. He immediately receives the word with joy, but when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Pliable climbs out of the swamp on the side of the city of destruction and goes back. But Christian leans in. Nah, I gotta keep going. I believe that there is a city, that I have an inheritance there, a dwelling place there, and I gotta get there. He continues to exercise faith in that spot. Remember the context of John 15. Jesus is on the eve of his crucifixion. He's preparing his disciples for difficult times. He's promised that he's going to come to them. Not to leave them as orphans, but he's going to come to them by his spirit. Together with his father. He's going to make his home with them. And he's urging them here. Abide in me. Abide in me. It's going to get difficult for them to abide in Him with fresh repeated acts of faith. I know that in our lives, it's often difficult to exercise fresh repeated acts of faith to abide in Christ. But Christian, I would just encourage you, hang in there. Hang in there. Keep going. Keep exercising faith in Christ and draw from this passage several reasons to do so it's not about being fully and finally saved or losing your salvation but it's about our Christian life and what kind of Christian life we're going to experience what kind of Christian life we're going to lead whether we're going to be in a poor, withered, fruitless condition both in frame and duties or whether we're going to have a vibrant walk with God supernatural joy, communion with Christ, and so forth.